Well, it's good to be here today, and let's go, in, let's go to Exodus chapter 14. It's been a great day already. Uh, senior recognition, baptisms next year, Lord willing. My son Will will be up here, so uh, it, I, that made me a little sad, a little happy, you know, kind of thing. So, uh, but I want you to, as we get into Exodus 14, this is something that is very important for us to hear. I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine a man who lives his whole life as a fugitive from justice, a man who lives his whole life moving rapidly from a series of sketchy apartments to cheap hotels, always on the run, living under assumed names, constantly looking over his shoulders, always knowing he's being pursued, always knowing he's being chased. He made some bad decisions early in life, got involved with some shady characters. They conned him of all his money. In an attempt to try to get, what he back, get back what he'd lost, he yoked himself to some even shadier characters, loan sharks, who now are out to hurt him and his family if he doesn't pay them back. And so uh, in, or, in an effort to get them off his back, he got involved in increasingly more illegal activities. So now he's a wanted man by law enforcement. And so it seems like every decision he makes puts him deeper and deeper into the hole, further and further away from getting his life back. He's got a wife who eventually divorces him because he's just never around. He's got a little girl, but he never spends any time with her because he's constantly on the run. Imagine that kind of life. Now imagine that this little girl grows up and against all the odds, against the advice of everyone she knows, even her mom, she, she chooses to love her dad and to believe in him. And whenever people say he's just a bum, write him off, forget about him, she says he's not a bad guy. He just made some bad decisions. Everybody deserves a second chance. And she decides it's her goal in life to be the person who gives her dad that second chance. And so she decides in an early age, she wants to go into law because she wants to help her dad and other people like him. And she, as it turns out, has a brilliant legal mind. And after she's graduated law school and, and passed the bar, she begins to work uh, at, a, at a good firm, but on her spare time, whenever she has a spare moment, she's working to help her dad. And eventually she accomplishes it. She, she makes a deal with prosecutors and in exchange for his testimony against the people, the bad guys who are pursuing him, those people are put in jail for life and his record is expunged. I mean, literally, he is a free man. Not only that, she goes after the people who conned him, sues them and wins a judgment against them so large that her dad is set for life, that he'll never have to worry about anything again. He's got everything he needs to start a brand new life. And she says, now, dad, you're free. And you and I can have a relationship, finally, that we were denied when I was a little girl. You can be my father, and I can be your daughter, and you can get to know my kids and be their granddad, and there's nothing holding us back. And remember, if you ever get into trouble again, I'm there for you. I will fight for you. But now imagine that this man, although he knows he's good with law enforcement, he still lives like a fugitive. Imagine that he continues to hang around with the same crowd and continues to live in the same shady locations and, and cheap hotels and barely scraping by and constantly on the run. Imagine that he doesn't experience freedom at all. Maybe it's because he's ashamed. Maybe he just feels like I don't deserve any of the stuff that I've been given. I can't face my daughter after the things I've done and put her through. Maybe it's because he can't even imagine what it's like. He's been living so long underground. He can't even imagine what it would be like to live a safe and respectable life or Maybe he's afraid those bad guys are going to get out of jail and come after him. He's living in fear. But in any case, wouldn't you say that's a tragic, wasted life? 
And that's just a made-up story, but it's a picture of what I see in a lot, the lives of a lot of Christians. If you ask the average Christian in America, what is there about the Christian life that is abundant? What is there? What does it mean that you are a follower of Jesus? What, how has that made your life different? My guess is nine out of 10 would say something like this. Well, I know I'm forgiven. I know that when I die and I stand before God in judgment, he's not gonna see my sins. He's gonna see the righteousness of his son because Jesus died on the cross for me. Therefore, I don't have to worry about judgment. I will go to heaven when I die. And that's all true. And that's reason to rejoice. And if that's all Jesus did for us, it'd be the greatest thing anybody ever did. But if you ask that person, so how is your life different now? I mean, I get, I get that when you die, good things happen, but how is, your diff- how is your life different now? I bet most Christians wouldn't be able to answer that question. Well, I go to church on Sundays. I got some rules I need to follow. Well, that sounds more like a responsibility than a privilege. How is your life better? How is your life abundant? Jesus said, I have come that you might have life more abundant, not more averagely. So how is the Christian life abundant? And how are we not like that fugitive bum whose at great cost, freedom has been bought for us and we're not enjoying it. We're not experiencing the fullness of our salvation. See, Exodus 14 is the high point of Exodus as far as pyrotechnics go. If you watch movies based on the book of Exodus, whether it's the Ten Commandments or the Prince of Egypt or any other movie, this is the part of the movie where they spend most of their special effects money, right? Because they got to part the Red Sea and that's always a highlight. And we're going to walk through, not literally, but we're going to walk through the Red Sea today. And you're going to see that story from the eyes of the Israelites. But that story is the one more, more than any other miracle in the Old Testament. It's the one that's quoted most often and referred to most often in the New, in the New Testament. And the New Testament writers, whether you're talking about, about John, Mark, Jesus himself, Paul, Peter, they always use it as a metaphor, as an allegory for our salvation. Yeah, it really happened, but what happened there happened in an even greater sense at the cross. And so we're going to look at what does our salvation really consist of? And what are we missing if your life isn't truly abundant? If you're not living such a life that you can talk about, like we just sang, I ran out of that grave. Jesus called my name and I ran out of that grave and I've never been the same since. If you can't say that honestly, if you can't say that people around you who aren't Christians look at you and say, man, I sure wish I had what he has. I sure wish I lived like she lived. What are you missing? That's what we're gonna talk about today. So in Exodus 14, verse five, it says, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, time out, context, people of Israel were slaves for 400 years in Egypt treated terribly. Essentially, the Egyptians were trying their best to annihilate Israel, to kill all the Israelites. But they said, let's get some work out of them in the meantime. And then God sets them free. Middle of the night, the last of the 10 plagues hits. Pharaoh says, get out of town. I never want to see you again. The Israelites pack their things. They get out as quickly as possible. And they're on the road for about three weeks. It's about a three-week walk from the land of Goshen, where Israel lived, to the Red Sea. And by the way, as they're leaving town, the the Egyptian people, not the government, the Egyptian people showered gifts on the slaves. Essentially, they were saying, listen, we don't want you ever to come back. So don't get halfway to the promised land and and think, okay, we don't have enough resources. We're going to go back to Egypt. Because if you come back here, your God's going to keep putting a whooping on us. So here, here's all our gold and here's all our silver and here's all our clothes and here's all our food because we want you to have plenty of resources so you never come back. 
and they're glad to see them go. But it says, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? You can hear the logic, right? We've lost our crops. We've lost our animals. We've lost everything. The only resource we had left was our workforce. None of us know how to dig. None of us know how to bake bricks or build things. Our workforce was the only thing that was going to rebuild our economy. And now they're gone. We need to get them back. And so it says, In verse six, so he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. Something you need to understand is we think of chariots as a primitive form of transportation, don't we? I bet none of you can remember the last time you rode in a chariot. But back then that was top of the line technology. That was military technology. That was like everybody else is on foot with swords and shields and you've got tanks. So if you had an army with chariots, you could defeat an army that was three or four times your size because you could run circles around them and they couldn't hit you. You're going so fast as you're picking them off with your spears and your arrows. And so here's Israel, maybe maybe as many as 2 million people, men, women, children, elderly. And they look up and they see dust clouds in the distance. The chariots of of Egypt are coming. Now, let me ask you something. You've just witnessed, over the course of months, the most powerful nation in the world brought to its knees by the wrath of God. For the last three weeks, since you've got free, you've been following a a visible sign of the presence of Almighty God right in front of you, because every day you look out and there's a pillar of cloud saying, okay, go this way. And at night, it's a pillar of fire reminding you God's still with you. So if you see your enemy coming back, don't you think you would think to yourself, they're back for more. What's God going to do to them this time, right? But that's not what happens. When Pharaoh drew near, this is verse 10, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die? In the wilderness, what have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians. Time out. Did Israel ever actually say that? When Moses and Aaron came to these slaves and said, the God of your fathers hasn't forgotten you. He's going to set you free from your slavery. Did anybody among the Israelites say, nah, we're good. We like baking bricks in the desert for people who despise us. Let's, yeah, just leave us here. This is a good life. No, of course not. They're remembering the past incorrectly. Next week, we're going to talk about this in greater detail. But one of the signs you're about to backslide as a follower of the Lord is you start to think nostalgically about your life before. You start to think, you know, life was easier when I didn't have to worry about God. That's what's happening here. They say, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And here's where you gotta love God because here's what happens. If I'm God and I hear my people say that, I'm gonna say, okay, you're on your own. I've done enough for you. If you still don't believe in me by now, let's see how well you do against these chariots. But that's not how God is. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. 
Okay, let me, let me summarize that. Let me paraphrase that for you. God through Moses says to the Israelites, sit down, shut up, watch what I can do. That's your job right now. Sort of reminds me of a story of when Carrie and I, years ago, we had a problem. Our dog uh, had a problem in the middle of the night and, and Carrie was trying to get me to help. But I was so groggy that I didn't know what she was saying to me. She's like, uh, help me make the bed. The dog just, you know, and I was like, what? And after the third time, she was like, go stand in that corner. <laughs> and so I did. I stood literally with my face in the corner until she said, okay, come back to bed. You know, so that's what God does to the Israelites. That's just between us, okay? That's just, don't spread that around. That's rather embarrassing. But that's what God says to the Israelites. So verse 21 says, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back on the Egyptians upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. So I want you to count the miracles that just happened with me. Number one, there's one we didn't read. The pillar of cloud that was leading Israel, walking ahead of them for three weeks, all of a sudden switches spots and goes behind them and becomes a wall between them and the Egyptians. So here comes the chariots of Egypt and they're, they're moving down the plains, the Sinai plain as fast as they can go. And suddenly they have to hit the brakes because here's this wall in front of them and they can't move. And at nighttime, that wall turns into a pillar of fire that lights the night for the Israelites. It's dark on one side and it's light on the other so they can watch miracle number two. Miracle number two is this wind that's blowing and, and making a path through the sea. How long was that path, by the way? We don't know, but we know this. The, the narrowest part of the Red Sea is 11 miles long. So at the very least, the path through the sea was 11 miles long and possibly longer. Now here's miracle number three, and this is my favorite. When the Israelites step into the breach between the waters, the ground is dry. I love that. Because there are actual commentaries written by actual Christian scholars that say, yeah, I bet what happened was there was some seismic activity, an earthquake or something that diverted the waters. And God's like, earthquake doesn't make ground dry. This is a miracle. Stop trying to rationalize it. God did something here. Miracle number four, when the Egyptians went into the breach because God finally moved the wall and they're like, okay, let's get them. When they got into the breach between the waters, all of a sudden, those chariots weren't handling well anymore. Something was wrong. And the ESV that I'm reading out of says that it clogged the wheels. So that, may, that means these scholars thought, think that what that Hebrew word means is that the ground all of a sudden became muddy again and they got stuck. There are other English translations that translate it differently. They say their wheels swerved. In other words, they weren't handling well. They may even have wheels have fallen off or, or just weren't going straight. Either way, the Egyptian soldiers knew. They're like, okay. 
God's still fighting for the Israelites. We're in trouble. And miracle number five is when the entire Egyptian army is inside the breach, God says, all right, go back where you were. And the waters cover them. And Israel is free. And that's the end of Egypt. That's the end of the Egyptian army. That is the end of Israel's enemies. And if you know the Old Testament, and if you read the book of Joshua, if you read Judges and First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles, you'll see a lot of stories that are really exciting. A lot of epic stories of a tiny little Israelite force overmatched on paper, and yet God wins this spectacular victory. When I was a kid and my mom used to read me Bible stories before I went to bed, the, the stories I liked best were the bloody ones because I was a little boy and little boys are savages, right? And so I used to love these stories of Gideon and his 300 men destroying an army so big that it looked like the sand on the seashore, right? I love all those stories, but of all those stories, this is the one that's retold more often than any other in the New Testament. Why? Because it symbolizes our salvation. The parting of the Red Sea, the salvation of Israel. What does it tell us about what it means to be saved? What does it tell us about our deliverance? Three things and then we're done. Number one, our deliverance is free. See, one of the myths of our time, and it's been this way basically all my life, is that all religions are basically the same. You've, hear, you've heard this, right? You may even believe this yourself. A lot of Christians do. This idea that all religions, all major world religions are basically paths to the same location. Okay, maybe not Scientology, they're weird. But everybody else, they're just, they're paths to the same destination. And, you know, I understand why people think this way. Number one, it seems like a very tolerant view. It seems like that's very enlightened of us to think that way. Number two, if you've ever met somebody who was a serious follower of Judaism or Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism or, or any of the other religions you want to name, if you meet them, you start to go, you know, we've got some things in common. We both believe that if you just live like everybody else, you're not living the way God wants you to. There's a higher moral plane in which to live. In fact, a lot of the same uh, moral structures that we believe in are, are similar. And we all believe in compassion. We all believe in helping those who are hurting. The difference is this. You see, in religion, all those moral dictates that I just named are ways to impress God. They're basically ways to set yourself apart from all other people and say, okay, God, see, I'm good. You can save me. You can bless me. You can take me into your home. But in Christianity, in the gospel, I should say, all those moral structures don't make you any more lovable to God than if you hadn't obeyed a single one. See, it's not grace until you realize there is nothing you can do to make God love you any more than he already does. And there is nothing you can do to make him love you any less. If your truth is anything other than that, you're not believing in the gospel. See, religion says, okay, we've found a path. We found the way to get to God. Do this, do that, do this, do that. Climb this mountain, see this person, consult this sage. If you scrap and claw and sacrifice and work, maybe you'll get to God. That's religion. The gospel says, no, God comes to you. He came to you when you were lost, when you weren't even trying to get to him. He came to you and he came on a rescue mission and he gave his life to rescue you. Your deliverance 
is free. Religion says, here's what you got to do. The gospel says, here's what he has done. That's the difference. Which one sounds more like what you believe? Which one sounds more like your life? See, it's like the Israelites, Moses said, just sit down, shut up, and watch what God can do. The only way you can mess this up, literally the only way, is by refusing to walk through the path that he makes for you to salvation. Can you imagine one of those Israelites looks at that wall of water on his right and left and that 11-mile path on dry ground and says, nah, I'm good on this side of the Red Sea. See, this is why, this is why when people say, well, I just can't believe in a God who sends people to hell. My answer is God doesn't send people to hell. God makes a way to salvation. And if you say, no, I'm good, then God gives you what you want. God says, here, you can come to me. You can be part of my family. You can be a child of the king. You can be free. And we say, I prefer to be separate from you so I can call my own shots. He lets you call your own shot. That's hell. That's why C.S. Lewis said the doors of hell are locked from the inside. God makes this way through the waters to salvation. The only way you can mess that up is by refusing to take it. And I'll tell you something else. Some of you know that there's a time in Exodus where Moses goes up the top of Mount Sinai and comes down after 40 days with these two tablets and they're covered with the law of God. And there's a covenant from that point on between the people of Israel and God himself. And he's their, he's their God and they're his people. And, and so they'll, as long as they follow that covenant, as long as they walk by that law, God promises your nation will be the most favored nation on earth. One Israelite soldier will chase a thousand enemy soldiers and you'll have everything you possibly need. I want you to notice something. If you've been with us every Sunday in this series, that hasn't happened yet, has it? God hasn't made his covenant with the Israelites yet, but he's already rescued them. See, human religion works the opposite way. In human religion, God says, okay, here's the rules. Let's see how you do. And if you do okay, Maybe I'll save you. But God saves the Israelites. And then he comes to them and says, now here's the way I want you to live. And that's the way it is in Christian life too. Our salvation is free. What are the commands of the Bible for then? The commands of the Bible are Jesus saying, because I love you. I want to spare you from pain. I want you to enjoy what it means to follow me in, in all of its fruitfulness. I want you to glorify me so others can come to know me. So here's the way to live. It's for your good. It's not for your testing. It's not for your proof. It's for your good. Don't you see? God saves you before he gives you the rules. And those rules aren't a test. He's not going to throw you out. Those rules are his love. Your salvation, your deliverance is free. Number two, our deliverance is complete. I said that this story is referred to over and over again in the New Testament. Here's one example. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 2. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So what is Paul saying? He's saying the, the, the story of the Red Sea is like our baptism today. What does that mean? Does baptism save? No. When we baptized those four people today, was that magic water? No. That wasn't holy water if there is such a thing. 
It was City of Conroe water, which means it's overpriced. <laughs> but the same water you water your, your, your yard with, or you take a bath in, or you drink. There's nothing magical about the water. We didn't wash their sins away in that baptistry. I don't have that power, but Jesus does. So when, when those four people were baptized, you didn't see them get saved up there. You saw them show a sign of their salvation, a declaration that I'm a new person in Christ. When the Israelites got to the Red Sea, guess what? They were already free. They didn't feel free yet, but they were free. They'd been set free the night of Passover three weeks earlier. When they walked through those waters and they saw the waters come across their enemies and wash them away, that's when they knew they were free. That's how it's like us. Our, our deliverance is complete. You are never going to be the same person again once you give your life to Christ. In fact, evil no longer has a hold on us. Just like the Israelites saw their enemies, they saw the bodies of their enemies. I know this is gruesome, but saw the bodies of their enemies floating in that water. And that may sound gruesome to us, but if you were enslaved for 400 years and you saw an army following you, you'd be dadgum glad to see them floating in the water. And you'd know, I never have to worry about this again. Colossians 2.15 is one of my favorite little-known verses in the Bible because it says that our enemies were disarmed at the cross. Your sins weren't just forgiven. The devil lost any power he had over you at the cross. Because of the cross, Satan can't touch a child of God. And as much as I respect certain branches of the church that are a little more uh, emotional than ours, and as much as I think they have some things right that we need to learn from, I don't like the idea that there are certain branches of the church that say you've got to walk around always on the guard against the devil and his ways, and you, you walk into a room and you cast the demons out of the room, and you, you walk into a new house and you cast the demons. No, you don't need to do that. The devil can't touch a child of God. The devil literally cannot do anything to you as a Christian that you don't give him permission to do. He has no power over us other than the power we freely give him by indulging in our desires. The Israelites also walked away wealthy. Remember what I said, the Egyptians gave them their wealth as they left the land. So again, the salvation, the deliverance of Israel was so much greater than they thought it was gonna be. I'm sure they thought, okay, this is great. We'll never have to work for other people again. We'll never have to bake bricks for people who despise us. That's good, but it was so much bigger than that. We get resources, we get freedom, we get a new land, we get to become a people, a nation of our own, we get to follow God. And that leads to my third point. Not only was your deliverance free and complete, it's ongoing. Your deliverance is ongoing. I didn't learn this growing up. I had a, a great Christian upbringing. I was a prenatal Baptist. I was in the womb in church, right? And, you know, once I was born, that kept on going. And so I knew a lot about Scripture, even at a young age. One of the things I didn't know was this. I thought that salvation was what happened when you prayed a prayer and Jesus entered your heart. That's salvation. I didn't realize that's just the beginning of salvation. Now, don't get me wrong. Once you come into God's family, you are truly saved. You accept Jesus as your savior, go outside and get hit by a bus, you're going to heaven. There's no doubt about that. I'm not saying your salvation is incomplete. I'm saying it's ongoing. I'm saying it gets better the longer you follow. The story of the, of the nation of Israel is this. God 
had a place for them, a promised land. A land that we know as Israel today, but back then it was known as the land of Canaan. And they had to get there. There were people living in that land right now. People who had lived there for centuries and who were desperately, relentlessly wicked. And God was going to bring judgment on those people the way he'd brought judgment on Egypt. And at the same time, as he cleared those people out, he was going to make a place for the Israelites to live. Houses they didn't build, cities they did not construct, gardens they did not plant. They would inherit all of this, the bounty of God. When you read chapter 15, you know, we've been in 14. Chapter 15 is the same story told in verse form. And this is one of those kind of cool little known facts about the Old Testament. When something major happens, oftentimes it's told two times. So you get the straightforward telling first, and then you get a song about it next. Why is that? Well, I believe it's because most people back then didn't read or write. They may not have even had writing back then. And so they made up songs. So they'd remember the details of what God had done. Because you can remember a song easier than you can remember a story or a spoken word. Let me just illustrate that for you. How many of you can remember songs you learned when you were a little kid? Can remember every word, right? Okay, how many of you can remember what I preached on last Sunday? (laughs) Don't feel bad. I can't remember what I preached on last Sunday. So my point is, these songs were to teach and to keep alive in the memory of the people until it was written down, the story of what God had done for them. And so in chapter 15, verses two through three, here's part of what they sang. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And Moses is saying to them, in the future, when we get into trouble, don't react like you did when you saw those chariots. From now on, you know that our God is a mighty warrior and he will fight for us. And then he gets more specific, verse 15. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Now, what is he talking about? He's naming these places, these people groups. This is not stuff from Middle Earth or Narnia. This is, these are actual people groups, the people who lived in the promised land now. And what Moses is saying is, they've already heard about us and they're scared. So when you get there, it's not gonna be easy to win these battles because they're going to come in with their hands trembling on their swords and their shields, and they're going to be quick to drop their weapons and run when you face them in battle. He's giving them confidence. Verse 16, terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. So what Moses is saying is the same thing he'd say to us today, and that is don't stop. So many Christians think, okay, I got saved. I prayed the prayer. I even got baptized. I'm in the club. What more is there? And if you stop there, you miss so much. It's like getting freed from slavery and living the rest of your life in the desert. It's like being rescued from your problems through the Herculean efforts of your brilliant daughter and then living the rest of your life like a fugitive anyway. Keep on following See, something I didn't learn until my middle years 
is this. In my teens and 20s, I was, I was a serious follower of Jesus. I believed in, in him and wanted to be his man. But what I thought was, okay, if I do God's will and I'm a good person and I go to church, then he's gonna, he's gonna show me what to do. I'm gonna marry the right person. I'm gonna go to the right college. I'm gonna go to the right, I'm gonna I go into the right career field and make the right decisions. And, and I'm gonna be just healthy and happy and, and, and wealthy and, and things are gonna be good. God's gonna give me this great life because I've been a good person. And it's so hard for me to tell you, it's so hard for you to get this. I want you to hear me. God is not so much concerned with where you live and what you do for a living and even who you marry, as long as you marry someone in Christ. God is concerned with who you become. The person you are becoming, that's his job. That's his mission. He's trying to make you into the image of Jesus Christ himself. That's what he's working on right now. And here's the good news. You're following Jesus. You're becoming a person just like him. You're developing wisdom. You're developing patience, peace, kindness, gentleness, love, all the fruits of the spirit. You're gonna make good choices. You're gonna make good decisions. Life is gonna go better for you in many ways, but it's not gonna go perfectly. There will still be times when the, when the chariots of Egypt appear on the horizon. You're gonna be in a doctor's office and you're gonna be waiting for a lab report and you're gonna be like, I don't know what he's gonna say. This pain is weird. I don't know what it means. You're going to have some struggles in your family. Maybe you and whoever you're married to don't see eye to eye and you're wondering if y'all can stay together. You've got a, a child who's struggling and, and you don't know how to reach them or, or your company's laying off people and you don't know if you're going to get the pink slip next. Being a Christian doesn't guarantee that all that's going to turn out the way you want it to. What it does guarantee is your Lord fights for you. And no matter what the world throws at you, he turns it into something good. Something that works toward your further salvation and his further glory, and you can trust him. So we don't live like beggars. This is an old story of these two uh, Irishmen, Pat and Mike, who are in a rowboat, lost at sea. They've run out of food and water. They're starting to get desperate. So Pat begins to pray. Oh Lord, if you'll save me life, I'll never touch another drop of liquor. I'll never cuss or, or fight again. I'll be in church every single Sunday. And Mike says, hold on there, Patty boy. Don't commit yourself. I see a ship on the horizon. <laughs> and that's us, Christians who live like God has to be tricked, dealt with, bargained with. When God says, I want to give you good stuff. I want to bless your life. I just want you to follow me. I just want you to pursue me, not those other things. Pursue me. And guys, after what he's done, the way he delivered us at the cross, a miracle a thousand times greater than what he did at the Red Sea, why wouldn't we trust him? Are you living that life? What are you missing in your path to salvation? Your deliverance is free. It's complete. It's ongoing. Are you pursuing it? Are you experiencing it? If not, now's a great time to say to the Lord, Lord, I am, I am not living the life that I should, and I'm the one who's being hurt. I'm denying myself what you died to give me, so show me the way. Renew my faith and help me to follow you.